Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Texas is back, and Nick Saban's dynasty at Alabama is dead. That's the narrative. After the Longhorns whooped Alabama inside Bryant-Denny Stadium on Saturday, we'll get into that and whether we buy into that narrative on this edition of SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer, along with John Adams. We will also discuss the state of the SEC West, what was once the best division in college football. Looks pretty weak this year. Three of the front runners already have a non-conference loss. So, John, let's begin in Tuscaloosa, where not only did Alabama get beat 34-24 by Texas on Saturday, I thought they got beat definitively. I thought Texas was better in at nearly every every position. They were certainly better at quarterback with Quinn Ewers as compared to Jalen Milrow who threw two costly interceptions for Alabama. But it wasn't just Milrow. Texas was better at the line of scrimmage. Uh, they were plays for most of the game on defense, better in the special team. I mean, just all the way down the line. I thought Texas was the better team. And, and in many ways, by the time Texas was in the victory formation, I didn't think it felt like a, a surprise anymore. No, you go back to last year's game in Austin when Texas won. I mean, when Alabama won, Texas was winning that game when Quinn Ewers was was at quarterback. He was injured, came out, and still Texas almost won. And this game picked up where that left off. Uh, Yeah, I've uh, changed my mind about Texas. I didn't think it was tough enough to beat Alabama at Bryant-Denny Stadium, and it was more than tough enough. In no aspect of the game did I feel like Alabama had an edge. In either line, and this Alabama offensive line, I think, is really overrated. Uh, Skill positions, Texas receivers against Alabama secondary was a mismatch. And frankly, Texas looked like a much better coach team than Alabama did. Uh Alabama had all off season to prepare for this game and think about it and scheme and how you're going to, what you could do against Texas, because let's face it, it, it wasn't giving MTSU much of a thought in that opener. So it was a, it was a horrible loss for Alabama and a bad loss for the SEC. Yeah. We'll get more into that latter thought in a bit, John. I want to get to Milrow in a minute because there's a lot of questions at Alabama going into the season about starting quarterback and um, Milrow was fine against middle Tennessee state. But as you said, who, who cares about that? Um, He struggled uh, to read the field, got locked in on some receivers through two interceptions really should have been three interceptions. I want to get to more on that in a moment, but some other things that really jumped out to me here, you mentioned the offensive line. For Alabama. This was supposed to be their calling card this year. Alabama fans were getting excited in the preseason. They were going to return to bully ball or uh, what's also known sometimes as murder ball. Uh, that was the style during the earlier portions of Nick Saban's dynasty. You won at the line of scrimmage. You had a steady handed quarterback. Uh, you had a, a bulldozing running back. That, that was going to be the bread and butter of Alabama again. Mm, sorry, don't have the offensive line for that. Texas destroyed that Alabama offensive line. They, Milrow was under heavy duress, sacked him five times, living in the backfield. By comparison, Alabama's offensive line, I mean, that used to be one of the calling cards of this program. No sacks, just two tackles for loss. Quinn Ewers, comfortable pockets to throw. And by the fourth quarter, he was completely comfortable inside that hostile environment. So, I mean, I, I think the problem's for Alabama in that game, run run the gamut. As it pertains to Milrow, though, John, do you think a quarterback change 
could rejuvenate Alabama. And I guess when I say rejuvenate, I mean allow them to contend for the college football playoff. They have no margin for error now. A week two loss, you you better run the table if you want to make the playoff. Um, is this as simple as making a switch at quarterback, going to Tyler Buckner, the Notre Dame transfer who was the backup in week one? Or do you think a quarterback change really doesn't change the project trajectory of this season? No, quarterback change doesn't doesn't affect things. Uh, you're talking about a quarterback who would have been the backup at Notre Dame if he had stayed there this season. Uh, and Ty Simpson has never shown anything that's convinced coaches that he could be the guy. Uh, but if you, you talk about Tyler Buckner, uh, a quarterback who doesn't make mistakes, who's good at decision-making, who can find the open guy, get the ball to his playmakers, yeah, that might be an upgrade over over Jalen Milrow if Alabama had, in fact had that. But Alabama doesn't have the supporting cast for a quarterback like that to excel. It doesn't have great playmakers at wide receiver. And not compared to what it's had in the past, it doesn't have a Najee Harris at running back or Derrick Henry at running back. Yeah, Alabama could play bully ball with Derrick Henry uh, <laughs> he could run over anybody you put out there. Uh, he was a dominant back. Najee Harris was a dominant back. Alabama doesn't have anything like that. It doesn't have anything like Jameer Gibbs from last year. Not a power back, but he ran hard for his size and he had game-breaking speed. I, I don't I don't know how you – coaches always say, and of course Nick Saban said, you need to fix things. I don't see how you fix Alabama's problems. And we haven't even mentioned 10 penalties. Just, I mean, that was the theme of last season. And the theme has continued. 10 penalties. You, you just can't, you can't do that and, and win championships. I mean, that could sabotage a, a really good team. And Alabama isn't a really good team right now. I agree with you on the quarterback situation. John, because if it was, as you say, if, if there were all these weapons out there and you just needed a quarterback who could who could read the field and flick it around a little bit, uh, a Mac Jones type, you might say, who was surrounded by weapons and he was he knew what to do with them. Right. He, he read the field. Uh, he was accurate. He was confident, poised the whole bit. He was what that team needed. But to be fair, he also had um, just an embarrassment of riches at his disposal. If I were drafting wide receivers off those lineups on Saturday night, I think you'd get to at least the fourth round, at least, before I picked an Alabama wide receiver. I, I mean, some order of, of the first three receivers off the board for me would be Xavier Worthy, A.D. Mitchell, and Jatavian Sanders, all three in Texas uniforms. I, I mean, Alabama just doesn't have the weapons. We raised these issues in the preseason. I think that's why we thought maybe Jalen Milrow gave them their best bet at quarterback because he's a weapon of his own with his legs. And through three quarters of that game, or at least two and a half quarters, Alabama's best plays were quarterback scrambles. They couldn't do anything else. The only momentum they'd get is when Milrow would run around a little bit. I'm surprised that Alabama didn't draw up and, and Tommy Reese, their first-year offensive coordinator, didn't draw up some more designed runs for Milrow because, to me, that's that's a big part of his strength. That's a big part of why you would want him out there is his threat as a runner. And he was doing plenty of running as in scramble mode, but I thought they maybe should have designed some more runs for him uh, to incorporate him that way because otherwise, he's a bit of a one-read quarterback and I just don't think Alabama has the wide receivers where you can you can count on them to to beat defenders with with enough proficiency that you can be a one or two read quarterback. You don't have wide receivers that can get open easily. You need to be able to sit in the pocket, read the field, wait till someone comes free. Well, Milrow didn't have time to sit in the pocket, and when he did, he wasn't good at reading the field. So. Yeah, maybe a quarterback change is required if this continues for Milrow. Maybe we see two quarterbacks from Alabama this week against South Florida. Sure, but 
I'm with you. I, I don't think the, the, the fix at Alabama is as simple as changing quarterbacks because they don't have the supporting cast to support Tyler Buckner if they were to go to him. Blake, you also have to – this also raises questions about Nick Saban. Uh, you always have to say greatest coach of all time because he is in college football. But he's not the greatest coach of all time right now, <laughs> I guess. Uh, he, you know, he had to know what this team was capable of. I mean, we hear all this offseason stuff about what Alabama could be, what a change in coordinators could mean, all this kind of stuff. But ultimately, it's Nick Saban's program. And he's been doing this a long time, better than anybody. So he should know how good this team is. He should know what it can and can't do. So I just didn't think, I just don't think what it's trying to do fits its personnel. And and that's a significant issue. What does fit this personnel? I'm not sure right now. Yeah, that 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 would be my question because yeah, what, I, I agree. I don't know that they can win with bully ball, uh, but I don't think they can win slinging it all all over the yard with Tyler Buckner either because they don't have the receivers for it. And uh, you know, you might be able to go nine and three doing that, but I, I yeah, I don't I don't know what their identity is with this group, and I wonder if that's why. Alabama did change identities. Like I think we assumed, oh, Saban, he relishes the chance to get back to the old days and and winning with old school Bama ball. Maybe he relishes it, or maybe he just knew that that was their best bet this year. Now, if the offensive line doesn't play better than it did Saturday, then I question whether that is their best bet, but I don't know what that identity becomes. So a two-part question for you, John. I don't want to get into exactly the is Texas back narrative because that becomes a little bit of a silly debate because it's it's all based on what you think what does back mean you know so let's put that aside and and speak in more definitives so two-part question one if Texas were in the SEC this year would you favor them to reach Atlanta and play in the SEC championship game based on what you've seen through two weeks. And then part two, how dire is it for Alabama? Because we've seen in past seasons, um, they've lost, uh, they don't often lose in September, but we've seen them lose an October game. A couple years ago comes to mind. They lost to Texas A&M and a shocking result. They still reached the national championship. We've seen Nick Saban come off the ropes before. Is this different? Does this team not have the punch or are we quick to count out Alabama at this juncture? I don't know if you can count it out or you, maybe you shouldn't count it out, but it's hard to count it in right now after watching that performance. I mean, I watched a lot, a lot of SEC ball, the, uh, the first two, two weekends and seeing what the competition is, uh, but let me go back to the first one, Texas. Yeah, based on what I've seen so far, but that's based on I don't know how how bad Alabama might be. It's hard to even say that, but we don't know yet. That doesn't look like a very good team uh, Saturday, regardless of the competition. Yeah, Those, but but LSU lost to Florida State. Yes, Texas A and M gets by right. Miami. So other than Georgia, I don't know who I would rank ahead of. Texas in the SEC right now and honestly no. based on the way they've played through two weeks I might be tempted to go Texas ahead of Georgia now maybe that's crazy talk about the two-time defending champions and really Georgia hasn't been tested so it's not a real fair measuring stick to try to pick the nits in a blowout win over Ball State but yeah I mean I I don't think this is the Texas of old they they do play much more physical than during that decade, they were wandering around in the abyss. They're, they're developing talent better these past couple years. We know they recruit well. Tex- recruiting well has not been the problem for Texas, but now they seem to be developing some of that talent. They've added via the transfer portal, and I really like Quinn Ewers. Uh, I mean, like you said, if he wouldn't have got hurt last year, I think they win that game in Austin against Alabama. And based on what I saw Saturday, I think he would rank... Uh, in the top third of quarterbacks 
in the SEC. He, he'd be just fine in this conference. I agree, and he has a lot of help, too. He uh, does. I, I Yeah, I would put Texas, yes, if Texas in the West right now, uh, it would be the favorite. But you have to bear in mind, I don't think Texas is winning the West requires playing the SEC West schedule. And I don't think Texas is accustomed to doing that. This was a huge game for Texas. It passed with flying colors. But there are a lot of teams in the West that can beat good teams. And you never know on a given Saturday. That's how that division has been for a long time. I mean, LSU is only a nine or 10 point favorite on Mississippi State, which was a popular pick to finish last in the division. So you're playing a pretty good opponent every time you line up in the SEC West. So I think that would be a challenge. How would Texas handle success? Great success, but it's one game. I mean, it didn't look like a powerhouse against Rice in the opener. So, yeah, I just think we'll have to – that's that's the problem with early season games, and we've had a lot of these games that are just engendered uh, knee-jerk reactions because they have gone counter to kind of what we expected. Colorado wasn't expected to be what Colorado is right now under Deion Sanders, uh, for example. Alabama isn't maybe what we expected. LSU falling apart in the second half of Florida State. We've seen a lot of these kind of games that create a a wow factor, I think. So I guess we need to be a little patient, but we got a weekly podcast. We can't be too patient, can we? No, not not a ton of patience on SEC football unfiltered. Uh, John, I want to broaden the conversation here in a second and look at the rest of the state of the SEC West. But before we move on, if I were to set the over-under at Alabama's win total just through the 12-game regular season, put the bowl game aside and whatever else, I'm setting the over-under at 9.5. Would you take the over and say they get to at least 10 wins through the 12-game regular season, or do you take the under? I'd take the under. Yeah, I think I would too. When you look at the schedule and you start saying, well, oh, who could beat them? Then you say, well, they could beat that team, that team, and that team. They could win out in the regular season. But the team we saw Saturday against Texas isn't winning out. It's not that good. And so you look at playing Ole Miss, you look at playing Mississippi State, Auburn, you know, that the Iron Bowl is a challenge for favorites every year. We saw we saw a couple of years ago where Auburn had Alabama on the ropes in the last game of the regular season, Alabama prevailed, but uh, that wasn't a good Auburn team and had a bad coach in Brian Harson. So you can say, yeah, Alabama could win out, but I think there's a better chance of it losing four games for the season than it is of it winning out. I mean, I could see it eight and four before I could see it 11 and one. Yeah. And I, I'd probably find that sweet spot around nine and three. And because we didn't even get into Tennessee and LSU, which I know LSU was was taking a beating in week one after the loss to Florida State. But Florida State's, I think, really good. And I know neither one of us has completely written off LSU at that at, at this point. So let's get into more SEC West talk, John, because sort of the, the general idea about the West coming into the season was Depending on who you asked, it was either LSU or Alabama one, the other one was two, and Texas A&M was three. And now it's taken just two weeks for all three of those teams to lose a non-conference game. Texas A&M, the off-season questions were, oh, how, how's Bobby Petrino going to mesh with Jimbo Fisher? Can Bobby Petrino revive this offense? Well, I understand where all, all that spotlight was was headed in that direction. We were the same way. I guess we didn't consider the possibility that A&M's defense might get shredded for 48 points by Miami in week two. Uh, LSU, the aforementioned loss to, to Florida State. So here we are. The the three so-called top dogs all have a loss. Meanwhile, Ole Miss went on the road to a two-lane team that was ranked in the top 25. Now, granted, two-lane was without their star quarterback. Michael Pratt was injured and did not play, and they, they had – backup Kai Horton in that game, who's a far cry from Michael Pratt. 
that was a tussle throughout the first half. Tulane got some big plays, but then Ole Miss's defense toughened up after halftime, stopped giving up the big play, and and although they couldn't run the ball, Quinshawn Judkins is stuck in neutral behind that offensive line through two weeks. Jackson Dart's playing pretty well. Ole Miss sits here at 2-0. Two, two they have Alabama in two weeks. Are you ready to engage with the possibility of maybe Ole Miss winning the SEC West, or is that premature and you still like one of the early front runners in this topsy-turvy division? Topsy-turvy is a good call. It's hard for me to foresee any team winning the West right now. (laughs) (laughs) Just just give the crown to Georgia and skip Atlanta? Yeah, just don't fool around with that. Uh, I just think I I watch Ole Miss, and it's got a veteran offensive line. I thought that would be one of its assets. and couldn't run the ball well on Tulane with a great running back. So that's that's a red flag to me. I see red flags all over the place. Um, LSU was awful. So when I say, yeah, there's an opportunity for somebody to step up and, and come out of nowhere maybe and win this thing, I don't know that I see a team capable of that. What I see is a lot of teams, I see a lot of upsets in this division. I, I really think if you're not on top of your game, LSU, Alabama, A&M, or Ole Miss, let's take the what we think are the top four teams in the division. If they're not on the top of the top of their game, I don't know if they can win those games against Mississippi State or or Auburn, uh, Arkansas. I just think we're going to have a really scrambled division, and we're not accustomed to that. We're accustomed to the West being really good and being really deep. But there was also always up there at the top, there was a team that, okay, these other teams are good, but we're still better. An Alabama or maybe like a an LSU in 2019. I just don't see that right now. I would still, after – Despite how bad LSU looked in the second half against Florida State, I still, after watching Alabama and A&M get, as you said, shredded by Miami's passing game, I still look at LSU as being the favorite. I probably would, too. Yeah, because, I mean, the the fact that LSU has to play on the road at Alabama doesn't look all that menacing after, uh, you know, Texas came to town and just, stole Alabama's lunch money, really. <laughs> After the game, John, I thought this was like a, a telling sign that the rain has ended for Alabama. If, as if back-to-back national championships from Georgia weren't enough to prove that the rain has ended in Tuscaloosa. There, was, uh, there were videos coming out of Austin on Saturday night of Texas fans chanting, We want Georgia. We want Georgia. You know, the chant that used to be reserved for Alabama is now uh, has now shifted on to, to Georgia. Georgia 2-0 hasn't been tested. I don't know when they're going to be tested. John, this, this schedule's so weak. We've talked about it before. They have South Carolina this week. I mean, Georgia's a, a, a four-touchdown favorite at home against quote-unquote rival South Carolina. Georgia's really gone under the microscope. I mentioned the the chant of we want Georgia. Another way Georgia has become the new Bama, it's like they're being held to the Bama standard. Through two weeks, they've outscored two cupcake opponents, 93 to 10. And yet, if you kind of follow along with some of the narrative on Georgia, tap into fan reaction, even media reaction, it's sort of like, ah, Georgia doesn't look real good. I don't you know, we don't, we're wondering whether they can three-peat. We were wondering about Carson Beck. They didn't score in the first quarter against Ball State. It was like a five-alarm fire. Um, what do you think about that, John? Do you think this is um, just sort of a two-time national champion being un- held to an unfair standard? Or are you among those saying, I don't know about Georgia, even though they have two wins that on the scoreboard were were blowouts despite the criticisms? No, Georgia's held to a different standard right now, just as you said Alabama was. Um, 
But it's not just about the record. It's not about just about the scores or the stats. It's also about an eye test. And when you watch Georgia, you don't look at it just in the present. You look at it in the past. And that's where the comparisons lie. You look at Georgia's running game. It's not as good as it was on those national championship teams. Part of that, it lost Branson Robinson for the season to an injury. Dejon Wagner hasn't played yet. So you can't, so you can see, unlike Alabama, you can see things getting fixed with Georgia. It's played without Lad McConkey, its best wide receiver. When he comes back, that's going to be a really deep receiving core. Uh, so I don't, I guess when you've won back to back national championships, you're you're at held to a standard that's almost impossible to reach every Saturday. I mean, the world was coming to an end when Georgia almost lost to Missouri last year. How yeah, could that even happen? That, that's the other thing I think about, John, because they, they are held to a high standard now, but also they've proven that they don't have to be clicking on all cylinders in September to trounce TCU or whoever shows up in January. You know, I mean, last year you think about the Kent State game and they won by a few scores, but Georgia did not look good in that September game against Kent State. Uh, you know, their FCS win last year, you, you might have expected it to have been like 70 to nothing. Nah, Georgia was scoring in the 30s. And then there was, as you mentioned, the, the, the closest test of all against Missouri, even Kentucky on the road last year. Georgia messed around and really didn't score much. So we've just seen it before where, you know, to me it's like it's not always about the score differential with Georgia and how they're playing against these these weak opponents because they have had a tendency to turn it on when the big game arrives in the past couple seasons. Well, all of a sudden the questions fade away. The difference is now is the change in quarterback. We haven't seen Carson Beck have to go out and win those big games. And as you said, I think we expected Georgia's offensive line and its run game to be one of, if not the strength of, of this offense. And you know, it really hasn't done much the first few weeks. And and that can be said for a lot of the SEC, though, John. I mean, the days of, of the SEC, I feel like just dominating non-conference opponents in the trenches seems to be fading away a, a little bit. I don't know if that's the transfer portal and NIL having some parity impact. I do think that's part of it. Talent is spread around a little bit more, not just up front, but really across the board. Uh, I mean, that Florida State win against LSU, one of the stars of that game for Florida State was Keon Coleman, transfer for the Seminoles. So I do think that has offered a smidge more parity into the sport, the, the combination of transfers and NIL. But maybe there's just something else I'm not putting my finger on. But for whatever reason, we are not seeing SEC teams just impose their will and um, and dominate up front. We always hear this a line of scrimmage league. I don't know. It doesn't look that much different than a lot of other leagues out there. And frankly, the ACC has looked better in a lot of these non-conference games. Well, one thing I will say about Georgia, Kirby's playing a lot of guys. And I see when when they put in backups, there doesn't appear to – and I'm talking about defense, offense. Just They seem to have a deeper team than, say, an Alabama does. That's what was one thing that used to always pre- impress me about Alabama. And this could speak to the impact of the portal – would Alabama would bring in guys late in the game and you would see a promise in those players. You could say, I can see that guy in a couple of years. He'll be an all-SEC linebacker, cornerback. I still kind of see that with Georgia. I still see that depth, uh, even though it has lost some players to the transfer, port- transfer portal. So it's hard for me right now, though, to get a read on Georgia. Carson Beck threw the ball. I thought he looked better Saturday, even though Georgia didn't score in the first quarter. I thought he looked more sure of himself than he did in the opener. And he's not going to be Stetson Bennett. Finally, maybe, now that Stetson Bennett is gone, 
George, George can say Stetson Bennett's one of the greatest quarterbacks we ever had. Forget what happens in the NFL. This guy was a playmaker. He was Mr. Clutch, MVP of four different playoff games on offense. Georgia doesn't have that at quarterback right now, and it doesn't have all the running backs it's had. So, yeah, it might not be as good, but I think it has potential by the end of the year to be really good again and be right there challenging for national championship. I don't think it will win one just because of the odds against it, but I still like Georgia better than anybody else in the conference. John, I want to get to our week three picks soon, but before we bring in the betting spreads and start throwing around our uh, mediocre predictions, as they've been so far through two weeks. Just looking at the games themselves, a couple of the more interesting ones this week. Tennessee goes to Florida, where Tennessee's a touchdown favorite. I was uh, I was talking to Steve Spurrier on the phone this week, and he had not seen the betting line. He said, what's, what's the spread in that game? And he expected Tennessee would be favored, but when I told him that one betting service had, had it at 7.5 points favoring the Vols, uh, Spurrier was a little surprised by that. He's he, he's expecting a close one here, and, and part of that might be the mystique of the swamp, or whatever you want to call it, the ferocity of the swamp. Tennessee's not won there, as you well know, uh, covering that program since uh, 2003. That was the last time Tennessee won in Gainesville. So there's that game highlighting things in the east, and then on the other side of the dial, LSU at Mississippi State. That's kind of a sneaky good one in that noon Eastern time hour in Starkville. Starkville, or excuse me, Mississippi State, they've been true to their word under Zach Arnett. They've moved away from the air raid. They're winning with ground and pound football. It's a little strange to see after watching, you know, Will Rogers throw up 50 times a game the last few years. Which of those two games are you more interested in? John, I'm sure you'll watch them both, but if you had to pick Tennessee, Florida, LSU, Mississippi State, which one has your eye a little bit more? Uh, Tennessee, Florida, because of the history. I mean, we're in the final year of divisional play, and you go back to when uh, this all started in the early 90s. That's when Tennessee was at its peak, and Florida was rolling under Steve Spurrier. So there's a lot of history and tradition, and – I still say, I guess it was maybe the 97 game and pregame Florida. The Swamp was the loudest stadium I'd ever heard in pregame. I'd never heard anything match that. Now, I've been to venues where the noise was just as great during the game. But the roar pregame, I'd never encountered anything like that. Uh, So that, because of all the history, uh, that to me is significant. And I also think, uh, because of even though Tennessee didn't look good against Austin P, it looks like an up and comer based on last season. Florida, on the other hand, it's kind of in disarray right now. Billy Napier in his first season went six and seven. He Florida looked uh dreadful against Utah in the opener, so there are questions about him and where he can take the program. So, a lot to prove here. If Josh Heupel loses in the swamp again, uh, that will raise questions, particularly since he's a a seven-and-a-half-point favorite. If Billy Napier loses two of his first three games after going six and seven, Florida fans are not going to be patient, anything but. So all of that is significant. Uh, To me, the LSU-Mississippi State game is significant because I pointed out earlier, Mississippi State, some people had it last in the West, and LSU, I think we both had it number one in the West. Mm-hmm. To think it's one versus seven, and the line opened at nine points. That's telling to me what the West could be this year with a lot of really good, close games. John, uh, you've covered so many of the uh, the Florida-Tennessee games over the years, you covered that rivalry during throughout its heyday with Spurrier versus Fulmer. And uh, while I was not covering college football then, I, I kind of 
I guess, grew up with that rivalry and a few others in the 90s. I'm a, I was born in the 80s, but, you know, really started paying attention to college football in the 90s. That was one of my favorite games every year, the Florida-Tennessee game. It, it's lost some of its sizzle, I think, in, in recent years. For a long time, Tennessee was not what it was in the 90s, and then now Florida is not packing its fiercest punch. But we know next year divisions are going away. Uh, in, in the SEC, and, and Florida-Tennessee will be played next year. But long-term, this looks like a rivalry that's going to shift from being played every year to once every two years. Do you think that um, you think that's a stinging blow? Will, will you be disappointed by that? Will you miss this, this game being played every year? Because as far as long-term rivalries, you know, it's not Tennessee versus Alabama. Um, and for Florida... You know, it's not Florida, Georgia, the cocktail party. However, you know, if you remember those games in the 90s, and I know you do, and most people listening to this podcast do, it at one time was one of the biggest games in, in college football for a certain stretch. So how do you feel about the strong possibility that within a couple of years, this game will not be played on an annual basis? It won't bother me that much. Because what's happened with the program since the 90s, with both programs, Florida last won a national championship in, what, 2008? Mm -hmm. uh, Tennessee won one in 1998. Uh, had won an SEC championship since then. If this were the 1990s and you're telling me no more Florida, Tennessee every year, that would be a letdown because just the atmosphere before those games, I mentioned the crowd at the swamp, Neyland Stadium would be really pumped up uh, when Florida came to Knoxville. So it was really good, but it doesn't have the long-term substance of Tennessee versus Alabama, and uh, which goes back many decades. So I look at that loss and I think, well, what you're gaining I like the idea of seeing teams, different teams, more often. I like the idea of Texas and Oklahoma coming into this league. I mean, people don't – this is off the the question a little bit, but but Texas, Texas hadn't been great lately. And so people forget how Texas can be when it's at the top of the heap. It's a pretty, pretty intimidating program, and the fan base can be – Pretty pretty intimidating as well because I watched Texas play Southern Cal for a national championship uh, in the 2005 season, and the game was in Pasadena, and Texas fans outnumbered USC's by thousands. So, yeah, it's going to be you'll get you'll lose something if you lose the Tennessee Florida rivalry every year, but I think you'll gain more than you lose when you look at the whole conference. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I mean, preserving those primary rivalries is paramount, obviously, but some secondary or or, or third-level rivalries are going to have to go. That's the reality of being a 16-team conference. All right, let's get into the picks, John. My record for the season is 6-3. and three. I was 3-2 and two last week. Your record is 4-5. and five. You were 2-3 and three last week, but I know you are... Uh, You've really been strategizing about your picks this week. I've, I've heard that. So let's dive into it. We will start with BYU at Arkansas. Arkansas burned me last week, John. I had him as my lock of the week against Kent State. I was dependent on an Arkansas blowout, and it was much closer than I had expected. So I missed my lock. Uh, but Arkansas at home is a 10-point favorite over BYU. Um, and BYU, the expectations maybe aren't as high as they've they've been in some years past for them. But this is a program that is is used to playing name brand schools on the road. When they were in, in independent, they'd kind of play anybody, anywhere, wherever. Uh, I won't say whenever because they wouldn't be playing a on, on, on a Sunday, <laughs> but uh, play whoever, wherever, and uh, usually held their own. So. Yeah, I think getting 10 points, I'll take BYU. Take Arkansas to win, but I'll say they do not cover the 10-point spread. How about you? Yeah, I just don't look at this BYU team as the way I have some other BYU teams. 
And uh, I don't know if it's ready for KJ Jefferson. If you're not, you know, SEC teams are used to what he can do. So uh, I'll go with uh, I'll go with Arkansas there. You know, uh, sign of the transfer era, John uh, BYU's quarterback this year is Keaton Slovis, who started at Southern Cal, then moved on to Pitt. (laughs) Yeah, and now has made his way to BYU. That's that's kind of the sign of the times now as you can you can start for three different schools in a span of a few different years. So, yeah, I don't know. Arkansas, I go back and forth on. As you know, no, few people are higher on K.J. Jefferson than I am, uh, although it was more the defense getting it done for Arkansas against Kent State. Really haven't been tested through two weeks at Western Carolina and Kent State. Hard to get a little bit of a read on them. Uh, so I will tentatively go the other direction with BYU. Uh, Okay, we'll let you bat lead off on this one. I snuck this game onto our picks docket late, so I hope you're prepared. I know we we just have a bevy of podcast listeners based in Missouri, so I snuck this one on our betting schedule this week. Kansas State, five-and-a-half-point favorite on the road at the menacing Faroe Field. Missouri (laughs) Tigers slithered past Middle Tennessee State last weekend, a game we hadn't talked about. Uh, Missouri's offense, hopes for a, a more dynamic offense, didn't didn't show up last week, and they were relying on that defense to, to prevail. Uh, what do you like in this one, Kansas State, five-and-a-half-point favorite on the road at Missouri? Well, we've been talking about Alabama's deficiencies, but it did manage to blow out MTSU, which uh, – Took Missouri to the wire, so uh, I, I like Kansas State. I, I would pick Kansas State if it were an eight-point line. I'll go with Kansas State as well. Kansas State lost quite a bit off last year's team that won the Big 12, but they lost more on defense, I think, than they did on offense. They brought their their quarterback back, Will Howard, and uh, so if that defense is the more vulnerable unit, I'm just not convinced Missouri from what we've seen through two weeks anyway is prepared to take advantage of that so I'll I'll say I'll go with you I say Kansas State uh, will win and will cover on the road Uh, South Carolina at Georgia this was a blowout last season and uh, and the prognosticators I guess are expecting another one because it's a 27 and a half point line Georgia is favored at home I, I hate picking games, especially conference games, when the line is this big. John, it's like you're going to go out and you're going to beat a conference opponent, a division rival. Uh, I know it's not the most heated rivalry on Georgia's schedule, but still, you're going to go out and beat a division rival by four touchdowns. Um, I know they did it last year, and these are the type of lines that Alabama had to cover during its uh, peak of its dynasty. So this is what Georgia's accustomed to now, but I just, I just can't bring myself to do it. I haven't seen despite the fact they've outscored the competition 93 to 10 in two weeks, I guess I just haven't seen enough from Georgia, even though I think they're going to win in a lopsided fashion to think they can, they can win by 28 plus. I will take the road Gamecocks and those 27 and a half points. Spencer Rattler. Your man. Yeah. Spencer (laughs) Rattler in two games is completing 83.3% of his passes. And a lot of those passes against North Carolina, 30 of 39, were completing on completed on the dead run. Uh, I fear for his safety in this game. Uh, not trying to be cute there. I, if North Carolina's defensive front could dominate South Carolina's offensive line, wow, I think he's in big trouble. Might not, not, might not be to his career disadvantage if he turned an ankle. Pre-game stretching. There you had go. To, had to sit this one out. A little uh, one-week opt-out, maybe. One-week opt-out. South Carolina can't run the ball against Georgia, so it's going to be Spencer Rattler just throwing the ball all over the place against a good Georgia secondary. Carson Beck, Georgia's going to play two, maybe three quarterbacks. Uh, you put the backups in there, I think there's still a lot of competition at every position with Georgia. So I'm going to give the 27 and a half points and take Georgia because 
I can't shake the memory of the North Carolina-South Carolina game. I thought South Carolina could win that game. Looked foolish uh, doing so. So I'll go with Georgia here, despite the large spread. Mm, picking against your man, Rattler. Can't yeah, believe I am. You brought yeah. yourself to do it. How about uh, LSU-Mississippi State, John? LSU and the, uh, the lines we're using here is a 10-point favorite on the road. Be uh, local time there in Starkville, 11 a.m. kick for against uh, 400th game starter Will Rogers. Oh, no, just seems like it. I think this is actually Rogers' 36th career start. Getting to be kind of crazy numbers, but they're a ground and pound team now. They hang their hat on the run game. LSU, 10-point favorite. Who you like? Well, I don't think Mississippi State can ground, ground and pound the ball against LSU. Uh, you need to really try and test that secondary, and you need to give your quarterback time to throw. I think this could be a rough game for Will Rogers and sort of a um, – I, I just I watched Mississippi State against uh, Arizona, and it pulled the game out. It was a really good game. Uh, but it spent the, it spent the evening chasing uh, Jaden Deloria – Delora of uh, Arizona, very exciting quarterback, great dual threat quarterback, intercepted him four times. That's why it won the game. But he had about 350 yards passing, about 400 total offense. And now Mississippi State is going to face the same kind of quarterback in Jaden Daniels. I, I like LSU giving the points here. I'm with you. I, I like LSU as well for the reasons you mentioned. Dual threat quarterback, which if you take the interceptions away – Gave Mississippi State problems last week. Of course, you don't take interceptions away, and that's why Mississippi State won the game. But you know, maybe long term, this shift to a more balanced—actually, it's not even balanced. It's a run-first off offense. Maybe long term, that'll work for Mississippi State. But I don't think that's positioned to take advantage of LSU's vulnerability. And we've seen it. LSU's weak spot—it's weakest spot anyway—is in the secondary. Florida State took advantage of that in the second half in week one. Mississippi State hasn't shown a lot of signs of wanting to throw it all over the yard. So I will uh, align with you and take LSU. And then our last pick before we get into our locks, John, uh, the game in the swamp on Saturday night. I'll be there for that one. Uh, I know you'll be locked in on that game as well. I mentioned I'd told Spurrier earlier that the line was seven and a half. Well, at least in the spread we're using here, it has shifted. It's only six and a half now. Six and a half point road favorite Tennessee. Forget the mystique of the swamp, even though they haven't won there since 03. I just can't bring myself to pick Florida. Not after what I saw against Utah. I know Tennessee was tinkering around with Austin P. The start of the game was delayed. Weren't functioning at a high level. I don't know. I'm not going to read too much into that. You see that sometimes against these FCS games. Uh, we heard Mark Stoops last week say it was a joy to beat Eastern Kentucky and can't let anybody take the joy out of that victory. I don't know if beating an FCS op opponent brings a lot of joy, but uh, I do see how sometimes teams don't take those games seriously. So I'm not reading too much into that. I, I don't think Florida will have the offense to keep up with Tennessee and uh, Tennessee's defense looks i know the competition hasn't been great but it's been better than advertised so far so i don't think florida scores a lot in this game and so i think tennessee can cover this the six and a half points i like tennessee even when the line was seven and a half points uh because i do think you're right uh the defense is better than it was better team speed playing very aggressively uh among the nation's leader in sacks and uh, tackles for loss, I know, against weak weak competition. But it wasn't doing that last season against weak competition. That, to me, is a really good sign for Tennessee, that it could win a game without scoring a million points, which is kind of what we thought was a, it had to do last season. Um, offensively, um, I kind of wonder about Tennessee, but – I look at Florida and I, I just don't see any area where, oh, that's that's a strength. That Florida could be really good in that area. I just don't see it. Uh, again, the Utah game, it wasn't just that Florida lost. It lost to a team mentioned missing half a dozen or so starters and without its star quarterback. And 
Utah barely beat Baylor this past week, and Baylor lost to Texas State. So I I know comparison scores can be tricky, (laughs) but but I just don't – I haven't seen enough good things out of Florida to think it could – could win this game or or even cover six and a half points that it's being given. All right, well, we'll offer our locks and, and get out of here, John. Uh, my lock of the week, uh, I'm taking home Maryland. Maryland is a 13 and a half point favorite. Uh, I will take the Terps in their game against Virginia. Virginia's 0-2, got blown out by Tennessee in week one, lost to James Madison in week two. They can't stop the run. Maryland's been running the ball well. They got little Tua as their quarterback, but uh, they got pretty good balance. Uh, they they whipped Charlotte last week, and uh, I, I'd rank Virginia's program right around with Charlotte right now with the way they've they've played the first couple weeks. So I'll take Maryland to cover the thirteen and a half at home. I'm not sure Virginia could beat Austin P based on what I've seen the first two weeks. Austin <laughs> P might be able to cover thirteen and a half. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really good pick. Um, I like that one too. Uh, I'm really surprised. I would have thought that line could be 20 points. Uh, I'm going with a big favorite, uh, even bigger favorite. I'm taking Kansas minus 28 at Nevada. Nevada lost by 52 to Southern Cal. Well, that could happen to any team. Also <laughs> lost to Idaho 33 to six last week. Kansas that doesn't happen to any team. That doesn't happen to anybody. <laughs> I think Nevada is clearly one of the worst teams in the country. Wouldn't mind seeing it line up against Virginia. Maybe on a neutral field, I'd watch that game just to see who was worse. But I, I Kansas has a great dual-threat quarterback in Jalen Daniels. It's got a good backup quarterback. How many teams have a backup quarterback with 37 career touchdown passes? Uh, it runs its offense. It's very creative offensively, and it keeps running it no matter what the score. So I don't mind giving 28 points to Nevada. I would have given Nevada another six, 34, taking Kansas. And if it gets lopsided, you can head on out to the casinos in Reno, and good luck as you try to find a $5 table, the ones I used to like to play back in the day. Heard they're harder to, harder to find in Nevada anymore, so... Uh, All right, enjoy the action in week two. Uh, We'll be back to review it next week. Thanks for listening to this edition of SEC Football Unfiltered. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.